Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, advertising critics have long noted that a company's PR tells you, inadvertently but reliably, exactly what their problems are. The ad features salmon splashing in crystalline waters. That company is for sure a massive polluter. That's the lump of salt with which to take the recent announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services that their new deal with Pfizer extends patient access to COVID treatment drug Paxlovid and maximizes taxpayer investment. As the HSS works with the drug company to transition Paxlovid to the commercial market. The announcement does not note that this transition entails hiking the cost of the treatment to more than $1,300 for a five-day course, or 100 times the cost of production. We'll discuss this outrage and what allows it with Peter Maybarduk, director of the Access to Medicines Group at Public Citizen. Also on the show, Counterspin listeners more than many recognize news media as a keystone issue, important not simply in their own right, but to all of the other issues we care about. The media lens, the points of view that they show us day after day, those they obscure or ridicule, that all affects the way we understand the world, our neighbors, and what's politically possible. That's why we see the fight for a thriving media ecosystem as bound up completely with the fights for social, racial, economic, and environmental justice. We talked about that nexus with Maya Shenwar, author and editor-at-large of Truthout and director of a new project, the Truthout Center for Grassroots Journalism. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. There are a number of crises that the COVID pandemic did not create, but certainly threw into relief. It has always been disgusting, frankly, that pharmaceutical companies are permitted to sell necessary life-improving and life-saving drugs at many times the cost of their development and production, keeping them out of the hands of those who can't afford them and leading some who can just about afford them to ration them dangerously. It's a particularly callous aspect of the U.S. profit-driven system, so out of keeping with basic tenets of public health that one kind of wonders how long it can be allowed to continue. We're looking at the latest example of this right now with a COVID-19 treatment Here to tell us about it is Peter May Barduk, Director of Public Citizens Access to Medicines Group. He joins us now by phone from D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Peter May Barduk. Great to be with you. Well, I'm sure that people won't be shocked to hear that the company in question right now is Pfizer, though they're hardly alone in these sort of practices. What is this most recent outrage that folks are concerned about? So Pfizer has more than doubled the price of its COVID-19 treatment, Paxlovid, Nimitrelvir plus Ritonavir, to the U.S. government from around $530 a course to up to $1,390 for a list price now. And that despite the fact that Pfizer's already made $18 billion off this drug, 
in global sales. And they're raising the price right at a time when it sort of hurts most because Will, obviously, to, to fight and to fund pandemic response has diminished greatly. And uh, the U.S. government is transitioning its response to the commercial market. So there's very limited resources now, public resources in the United States and around the world to ensure continuity of treatment. And in order to sort of make up for the loss of volume, Pfizer has decided to increase prices. But that's going to suppress demand further. That's going to make it harder uh, worldwide to, to access COVID treatment for people that, that need it. And it's also been pointed out, you know, that that the cost of production of this drug is near $13. And when you look at it that way, Pfizer is increasing prices to 100 times the cost of production for this drug. You know, I just take a pause there and we'll come back to it. But let's just lay out there. Paxlovid is an important drug. It's not an ancillary drug. It is. It has been shown to be impactful. And then globally, access to it has not been what it should have been. So we put out a study just last week finding that there's been more than 8 million cases of unmet need in 2022 alone, looking in last year's data, that basically more than 90% of need for COVID treatment as measured by high-risk infections was unmet in developing countries. And this, despite the fact, you know, manufacturers have sort of pointed to what they consider to be a supply glut. They say they're making enough of the drug. But again, the problem has been uh, monopoly, single source of supply, uh, opaque agreements about who is getting the drug and when, and very high prices have suppressed demand. So that if you if you look at high-risk infections uh, in the global south, if you look at just even just people over 65, which is what we looked at, but it's a significant undercount because it doesn't give you people with pre-existing and ongoing conditions and other vulnerabilities. You see that very, very, very few of those individuals received Paxlovid when they needed it. It just seems in a way like there's at least two different conversations going on, one of which is about there's a global health crisis. How do we address it? And then another one that's like, well, we have these pharmaceutical companies and they need to make money. And it's almost as though there's no overlap. I mean, I just saw Pfizer CEO a week ago saying, um, we remain proud that our scientific breakthroughs played a significant role in getting the global health crisis under control. It sounds like from what you're saying that actually they could have played a much different role in actually working towards getting the global health crisis under control. It's very frustrating to us that health authorities have relegated so much power to the pharmaceutical companies. In many ways, COVID-19 is a pandemic where prescription drug corporations have determined who receives what treatment or vaccine when, at least at a population level, at a sort of country, country by country level. And health agencies have been on the receiving end of that. They haven't always known what price another country is paying. They haven't known what's their place in line, the terms and conditions. They, they, and, of course, global health authorities haven't been able to effectively prioritize and indicate that we must prioritize population A, B, and C and, and sort of these ratios 
in order to end the pandemic as quickly as possible. Instead, drug corporations have really been in the driver's seat working you know, privately, secretly on their own and for their for their own logic in terms of where they can make the most money or what public relations and, and pandemic concessions they want to make. And unfortunately, that's that's continuing here in this case. You know, Pfizer could choose to be a good partner at this stage. Like set any sort of R&D ideas aside, they've made $18 billion off this drug. It's a bonanza. And there's an opportunity now to meet the funding shortfall with solidarity and and with public health interest. Pfizer can afford to say, we're actually going to reduce the price of the drug because there is a funding shortfall so that more people can get it, so that we can make up uh, the access gap. And you almost don't hear about that anymore because prices have been high enough and funding limited enough that the world has kind of given up. Mm -hmm. There was, if you roll the clock back, you know, a year or two, there was an ambitious call for global test treat programming. So all over the world, you could get a COVID test and then have a straight path to the appropriate treatment that that you needed. And what what has materialized is a small pilot program in a dozen countries instead of that great global ambition. And a very significant factor there has been, you know, the treatments are too expensive for developing countries or for the global effort to pay for. And so instead, we just have this this shadow of an effort. We're almost giving up on the idea that treatment can be available to everyone. And if you walk around in public health circles, you'll sometimes hear like, well, there's no demand. You know, countries aren't ordering the treatment. And then you have to think about why. And if you are a health ministry that's squeezed for resources, you have to make tough decisions about you know, hospital beds and available protocols against malaria. Do you shell out what was then $250 minimum, probably 250 to 500 I think, and probably now potentially going to be more uh, from Pfizer for this treatment? Or do you hold on that, not least given you don't even know when you'll receive it right. because of the shortages? And it might be different, you know, if if the drug actually costs something like that. But knowing Pfizer's production costs are far lower, $13, perhaps, perhaps less, and the revenue they've made so far, it's a conscious choice on Pfizer's part to make it harder to prescribe Paxlovid and to make up for that by charging a premium. Essentially, Pfizer has decided to uh, charge high prices to the few rather than affordable prices to the many in order to meet its benchmarks. And that's a public health decision. You know, it's not a corporate, it is a corporate capitalist decision, but it's a public health de- decision in its impact. And I, 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 and I just want to say, finally, you know, you've been quoted saying Pfizer is treating Paxlovid like a Prada handbag, you know, a luxury for the few rather than a treatment for the many. Meanwhile, Pfizer CEO is you know, took home $33 million last year, having been gifted a 36% raise from 2021. I think that folks can see that this is stomach churning and confusing and weird and bad, you know, but what Pfizer is doing is incentivized, or at least they're not being prevented from doing it. So where are the checks or where are the guardrails on this sort of behavior? What do we do about it? Yeah, it's part of the problem is that we have insufficient guardrails. HHS recently negotiated deal, a deal with Pfizer to 
keep people without insurance on treatment in coming years and to contribute courses to a national stockpile. So, you know, HHS has taken some appropriate steps to to ensure continuity of treatment here. But why did HHS have to pay the high prices that it paid? Could it have negotiated lower prices? Uh, you know, I think is a significant concern. And undergirding it all is the patent monopoly that allows Pfizer to exclude competitors from the market. As again, the drug is inexpensive to produce, and had we authorized generic competition, we probably could have affordable uh, supply by by now bringing these prices down the earth. You know, we're not paying for research and development here. We're paying for a monopoly. And you know, we were among a number of organizations that called on the Biden administration early on to issue a, a compulsory license or, or exercise certain rights it has under law to authorize affordable generic competition with expensive patented Paxlovid and bring bring alternatives online. And of course, the government hasn't acted on that proposal because of the lobbying power of the pharmaceutical industry. So, you know, right now we're kind of stuck, you know, um, but there are reforms that we can make to prevent this sort of thing from happening again. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be ongoing discussions about that. I mean, you saw sort of this week in the hearings for a new NIH director, you saw Senator Sanders taking a stand and, and saying we have to take responsibility for medicine pricing and our executive policies. And there will be an upcoming review by HHS and Commerce of government authority to act against uh, drug monopolies in certain circumstances. So it's an ongoing conversation, but our government has too few tools and does not sufficiently use the tools that it has. We've been speaking with Peter May Barduk, Director of Public Citizens Access to Medicines Group. You can learn more about their work online at citizen.org. Thank you, Peter May Barduk, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much. The future of journalism, how to grow and sustain independent reporting, has been a front-burner concern for decades now, as we recognize the structural constraints of corporate news reporting, its top-down bias that favors the powerful, and how it can never challenge the social economic status quo in a serious or ongoing way. Because, of course, the need for strong journalism is not for journalism's sake, but for the health of communities that need information to make choices, to see political possibilities, to communicate and participate. The search for models that support people's information needs and reporters' livelihoods is a work in progress, shall we say, but one that could hardly be more key. Maya Shenwar is editor-at-large for Truthout and director of the Truthout Center for Grassroots Journalism. She's author of the book Locked Down, Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better, and co-author with Victoria Law of Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms. And she co-edited the book Who Do You Serve, Who Do You Protect? Police Violence and Resistance in the United States from Haymarket. She joins us now by phone from Chicago. Welcome to Counterspin, Maya Shenwar. Thank you so much, Janine. Well, there was a time that some of us can recall when news media really weren't seen as an activist concern. Media were meta-phenomena. You know, you wanted to get 
media attention for your action or for your work, but media themselves weren't the object of critical concern, weren't problematized, if you will. I think that's changed for good, hasn't it? You don't have to sell activists or organizers anymore on the importance of having an analysis of media or on the importance of independent media. I think both of those are really phenomena that have shifted in the last couple of years. I think one is we've got this situation where journalism as a field is in crisis, just financially, just in terms of how do we get our word out? We see social media algorithms crashing entire outlets within a few months when they change. We see organizations scrambling to completely change their financial models when their corporate sponsors pull out or when the one foundation sustaining them pulls out. And then we've seen a rise in unionization, particularly at online media. And actually, Truthout was the first digital media to unionize in 2009. So we've seen this tremendous rise, which I think corresponds to seeing media organizations in a certain activist light as well. People in the sector are workers. Journalists are workers. Editors are workers. So that, I think, has also highlighted an aspect of of media as part of an activist phenomenon. And then beyond that, I think movement media as a field has really emerged in its own right. It's always been there, but I think it's being recognized, particularly among the left, but even beyond, as a valid component of journalism. And actually, this is this is the journalism we need, right? Right. And, you know, I think we as media consumers, as people, are recognizing that you give us 18 minutes, we give you the world, is not really the proper relationship to information. You know, the idea that it just kind of washes over you. And if you watch 28 minutes at six o'clock, you're going to learn everything and know everything that you need to know about what's happening around the world or even in your neighborhood. Yes, exactly. Well, and I think the expansion of all of these different types of online media have both introduced kind of this increasingly vicious phenomenon of disinformation, but also has exposed people to more of this reality that has always been true, that depending on your source, you can be getting a completely different version of the news. You can be absorbing those 18 minutes as the truth, but not only is it too short, not only is it too brief, But depending on which channel you're watching, those 18 minutes will look completely different. And I think this is the exact right moment to be discussing this, because right now we're witnessing Israel perpetrating this rapid genocide in Gaza with U.S. complicity. And meanwhile, much of the dominant media is still completely misrepresenting the situation removing the context of 75 years of colonization and occupation and apartheid and ethnic cleansing. 
and representing the current situation as a both sides war. And so I think increasingly, even people who haven't realized this before, but are tuned into that issue are recognizing, oh, media is such a political force. Right. And and I would point out, you just have a piece up on Truth Out right now with Sarah Lazar about the siege in Gaza, which I found hopeful, ultimately, in the awareness that safety can only come through collective liberation. I found it a useful exploration of ideas, and folks should check that out. But listeners will know truthout.org as a, as a publication, as a news source uh, on a range of movement issues. But you see yourselves as part of an, of an ecosystem, and it, it's that understanding that led to this new project, to the Truth Out Center for Grassroots Journalism. Tell us about that. What is the need that you're looking to address? What kinds of work are you hoping to lift up with that project? So we're in this moment that's pretty tough for truly independent journalism and particularly movement journalism. We have seen outlets shut down. We've seen some shrink. We've seen a lot kind of hovering on the edge of precarity. And part of that has been because of repressive changes in social media. Some of it has been economic disruptions and so on. But also in some ways, we've been seeing less collaboration among those media organizations nationally. There's certainly been some great collaborative regional projects, but on a national scale, we're seeing a little bit less of the collaboration than we did years ago when there used to be organizations, particularly the media consortium, which brought together movement media around the country. And that type of collaboration can help fields grow stronger, can help movements grow stronger. And at Truth Out, we've been thinking a lot about, okay, like, we want to exist as a publication, but we can't do it alone. We don't want to be anyone's sole news source. We want to have this vibrant ecosystem of different publications that are helping enrich people's understandings of the world and propel them toward action on all these different fronts. So this Truth Out Center for Grassroots Journalism is a little corner of Truth Out, which is focused on supporting and assisting smaller movement media organizations using the lessons that we've learned at Truth Out over the last 22 years of sustaining ourselves primarily based on small reader donations of figuring out how to broaden our reach and bring in new audiences and figuring out how to build a news organization that is able to approach even issues in which there's a lot of controversy and uplift, particularly what social movements are doing. So in addition to kind of that support and assistance and mentoring, we're also focused on bringing together movement media and social justice news organizations of all sizes around the country. This is aspirational, but working on it now. Since, you know, we recognize that 
what's going to allow us to survive. And when I say us, it's not just truth out. It's all publications that have social justice at their heart, you know, who reject this idea of objectivity and are looking to make media that are going to ultimately help the human race survive and support each other in, in ways that are going to uplift the movements that get us there. Finally, one of my favorite interviews on Counterspin was with Kelly Hayes, uh, direct action trainer, writer, including for Truth Out. And she was talking about the imperfection of social justice organizing, the anti-elitism. She said, I want a movement, not a clubhouse of people who think they know how it works. So much media, including social media, is about polish. It's about easy answers and shiny surfaces and confidence and the work of social change is the opposite um, of of hot takes. So just to underscore that the the media that we need that feed us, it's really a different animal. It has different intentions. It's not just a cleverer or even a more diverse version of what you're getting from corporate media. It's something different. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... One of the things that's most exciting to me about the center and the broader projects is that I think the media we need are embracing the idea of asking questions, not in like that interrogating way that you think of the traditional mainstream investigative journalist asking questions, but asking questions that are at the heart of changing the world for the better. I mean this both in terms of what our media is about and also what stories we're writing. So one thing that we do at Truth Out that I think a lot of the publications that we're working with have in common is we think about what is this story going to do in the world? Are there ways that it could cause harm? What is it intended to uplift? What impact do we hope it will have? Why is this topic necessary in the world? Why is this focus necessary? Who do we hope to reach? All of those things that tie into questions of liberation, tie into questions of justice, but aren't traditionally the type of questions you're supposed to ask as a journalist. Well, we've been speaking with Maya Shenwar. You can find out more about Truth Out and the Center for Grassroots Journalism on the site, truthout.org. Maya Shenwar, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website, FAIR.org. The website is also the place to show much-needed support for this show, if you are able and so inclined. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.